Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Washington Post had a, a good piece. A Russian soldier's journal. I will not participate in this madness. It's a guy with a name I can't pronounce. He was a Russian paratrooper who spent more than a month fighting in Ukraine after his poorly equipped unit was ordered to march uh, out of there, having gotten their asses kicked there at the beginning of the war. He was evacuated after being wounded, and as he spent five weeks in a hospital, he decided to write down all his recollections and publish them uh, on the Russian equivalent of Facebook. He wrote it all down in hopes that telling his country the truth about the war would help stop it. It's a 141-page journal that just got posted this month. The most detailed day-by-day account to date of the attacks on Kherson and another unpronounceable area in southern Ukraine seen through the eyes of a Russian soldier. The document describes an army in disarray, commanders clueless and terrified, equipment old and rusty, troops pillaging occupied areas in search of food because of a lack of provisions. Morale plummeting as the campaign stalled. He tells of soldiers shooting themselves in the legs to collect the $50,000 promised by the government and to be able to get out of there. Yeah. Man, the classic shooting yourself in the foot to get out of something. He describes units being wiped out by friendly fire. He blasts Russian state media for trying to justify a war that the Kremlin had no moral right to wage. They simply decided to shower Ukraine with... Ukraine with the our corpses in this war, he wrote, as he's seen a lot of his fellow soldiers die. Uh, it's pretty grim, by the way. It's long, and I'll just get you a couple of headlights, uh, headlines. But uh, it's 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 worth a read, but it's definitely sobering. It's not cheery. Um, it may not change anything, he wrote, but I will not participate in this madness. I arrived to the training ground. In Crimea, our entire squadron, about 40 people, all lived in one tent with plank boards and one makeshift stove. Even in Chechnya, where we only lived in tents or mud huts, our living conditions were organized better. This is from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Here, we had nowhere to wash up, and the food was horrible. For those who arrived later than the rest, me and about five other people, there was neither a sleeping bag, nor camo, nor armor, nor, nor armor or helmets. I finally received my rifle. It turned out that it had a broken belt, was rusty, and kept getting stuck, so I cleaned it with oil for a long time, trying to put it in order. So you get sent into a war zone. You got no weapon, no camo, and no helmet. What exactly are you supposed to do? I mean, that is stunning. How could it have been that disorganized from the from the beginning? I understand once, you know, you meet the enemy, all your plans fall apart and supply lines and all that sort of stuff. No, no, completely different situation. Yeah, I've got all sorts of great information on that for the next segment. Okay. Um, Around February 20th, an order came for everyone to urgently gather and move out, packing lightly. We were supposed to perform a forced march to some unknown location. Some people joked that now we would attack Ukraine and capture Kiev in three days. But already then, I thought it is no time for laughter. I said that if something like this is going to happen, we will not capture anything in three days. The division commander arrived and congratulating us on the holiday announced that starting tomorrow, our salary per day would be $69. It was a clear sign that something serious was about to happen. Rumors began spreading that we were about to storm Kursan, which seemed like nonsense to me. Everything changed that day. I noticed how people began to change. Some were nervous and tried not to communicate with anybody. Some frankly seemed scared. Some on the contrary were unusually cheerful. 
At about 4 a.m., I opened my eyes again and heard a roar, a rumble, a vibration of the earth. I sensed an acrid smell of gunpowder in the air. I looked out of the truck to see the sky lit bright from volleys. It was not clear what was happening, who was shooting from where or at whom, but the weariness from lack of food, water, and sleep disappeared. A minute later, I lit up a cigarette to wake up and realized that the fire was coming from 20 kilometers away ahead of our convoy. Everyone around me began to wake up and was scared. Even the commanders were scared. You could see it on their face. This is from the start. That's what strikes me. This is how it started. Yeah. If it starts this poorly, and with them having no idea what they're about to do, what a weird way, what a weird thing Putin decided to do. Anyways, he gets further into it. It talks about rolling into cities, being shot at by Ukrainians. He was horrified, he and most of the people he was with, horrified at the idea of killing Ukrainians for no good reason whatsoever. Some of the people in his unit, either because they're psychopaths or they twisted off under the the pressure, they started shooting Ukrainians willy-nilly and doing horrible things to him. A lot of the robbing was just to survive because they had no food or blankets or anything else. Yeah, yeah. As they rolled through. But it's 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 worth a read. But it's it's one of the weirder things that has happened in modern world history. One of, in theory, the best militaries in the world sent into another country with none of the soldiers, even the commanders, having the slightest idea what they were doing. So this is a look at corruption in Russia's military uh, information compiled by alert listener Jeff, uh, and he cites his sources. And it goes from, well, that's interesting, to holy crap. So stay with it. Hang with it. They mention how corrupt the, the military is. Few incidents of military corruption in Russia more shameless than the destroyer captain who stole the bronze propellers from his own ship, replacing them with cheaper steel ones to net nine, nine, 39 million rubles. Wow. So that's just a for instance. Wow, stealing the propellers from your own ship. Yes. That's yes. cynical. Old rations, faulty vehicles, missing radios, understrength units. Corruption has been blamed for hollowing out Russia's military and undermining its war in Ukraine. It's worth examining this problem and seeing how it's affected the Russian armed forces. Russia is one of the world's most corrupt countries, ranked 136th out of 180. State corruption is endemic. Uh, They go into some of those stats, but I want to get to the military. Uh, Corruption is the thread which holds Putin's regime together, and money in dollars or euros is its lifeblood. And nobody has more of it than Putin himself, at least an estimated $200 billion salted away in secret funds worldwide. Uh, Like every other state institution in Russia, the armed forces are riddled with corruption at every level. This is nothing new. In his 1854 Sevastopol sketches, Tolstoy wrote of Russian officers, while they are in the service, their main aim is the acquisition of money. Wow. In 1998, Russia's prosecutor general called the Russian armed forces, quote, the most corrupt government structure in Russia. And according to experts, it's actually gotten worse since 1998. So how does corruption in the Russian military operate from the bottom to the top? Corruption starts even before someone joins the military. As famously noted, only the poor or stupid allow themselves to be conscripted. The rest get out of it by bribing a doctor or a recruitment officer. The fee is reportedly between $5,000 and $10,000, or it was a few years ago. So you come up with 10 gur, you're out of the military. Up to 70% of those summoned for prescription pay their way out of it, leaving the armed forces with the poorest and least healthy 30%. This leaves the Russian military with chronic problems of fitness and efficiency. 
Colonel General uh, Vladimir Mikhailov stated in 2007 that more than 30% of the 11,000 men conscripted annually into the Russian Air Force were, quote, mentally unstable. More than 30%. 10% suffered from alcohol and drug abuse, and 15% were ill or malnourished. And if you get conscripted, brace yourselves, you'll be treated as the lowest of the low and exploited ruthlessly by older soldiers known as unkdiedi or uncles. This could include being forced into prostitution, doing unpaid labor, or even selling your own blood to earn a few rubles. Wow. Uh, in 2007, conscripts in St. Petersburg told Russian media how older soldiers forced them to perform sexual services for influential middle-aged clients or face torture. Young soldiers were reportedly forced to go with their clients into their cars. The uncles kept a list of providers. Wow. Other soldiers spoke of, quote, being sent out to the park to earn money. It was reportedly possible to pick up a soldier in the center of Moscow or visit a nearby military base where clients could choose one for 100 to $500, money that would go to the uncles, not to the conscript. If you're a contract soldier, a military professional, you're a step up, but you're still exploited. Salaries are low, about 240 bucks a month before the Ukraine war. You may well need to buy your own uniform, boots, and fuel. Compare that to the American Armed Forces, by the way. Uh, newer uniforms and boots of the right size are often unavailable because they've been stolen or sold off. Uh, the military sells off what, the, what they have, the officers in charge of it. They just sell it off for their own profits. So you go to the quartermaster, he doesn't have anything. So you have to buy your own online. Ironically, ex-NATO surplus boots are reportedly favorites for their comforts and durability. Wow. So that's how you end up with the situation of that guy we were talking about last segment. Before the war even starts... You don't have a working gun. You don't have a helmet. You don't have camo. You don't have a sleeping bag. You don't have anything because it's all been stolen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you may also need to pay for your own accommodation. Although you will get a bed in a barracks for free, you may find it's unheated because the money for electricity has been stolen or otherwise gone unpaid by your officers, uh, which is not much fun in Russia's cold climate. There are, however, compensations to being a low-ranking soldier or junior officer. You may be posted to a military depot. These offer endless opportunities for theft. A veto, Russian, Russia's equivalent of eBay, is full of advertisements for likely stolen items of military equipment. Russian bloggers are currently crowdsourcing money to buy equipment for the frontline troops in Ukraine. They've got almost literally GoFundMe pages to get guns to the guys on the front lines. Uh, many of the items they're buying were likely stolen from Russian military depots in the first place. These are very good times for corrupt quartermasters. Even tanks aren't immune to the plague of looting. When reserve T-72s were shipped from storage depots to go to Ukraine in March 2022, they reportedly arrived without electronics, optics, or even engines. All had been looted or stripped out. Only one in ten was reportedly usable. In one remarkable instance, a 72-ton prefabricated Panzer IIPU command bunker was stolen from a military base at uh, Leningrad in early 2020. Investigators were unable to discover what happened to it, but it was most likely taken for the metal scrap value. In a similar incident, a submariner in the, I'm sorry, submariner, my brother the submariner would uh, correct me, in the Northern Fleet stole parts of devices for controlling a nuclear submarine's reactor. He stole and sold rheostats made of very expensive palladium vanadium alloy, uh, but disabled the reactor in the process. Not a good idea. And it goes on and on and on. 
Well, it's so self-defeating, but it's just the culture. And I suppose they have a feeling of, look, everybody else is stealing. My not stealing isn't going to make a dent, so I need to get some. And the officers steal some or all of their men's wages as they are paid in cash. It goes into some detail on that. Non-existent troops, by the way, and there are quite a few, are known as dead souls after a classic Gogol poem. Um, yet this military is laying waste to Ukraine and killing lots and lots of innocent people. We gotta find an enormous cost to both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Point of personal privilege. Don't get brazen with me. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I didn't buy a Tesla because um, I certainly didn't buy it because I think about the environment. I I don't. Maybe I should, but I don't. And maybe that makes me a bad person. But I didn't buy it for that reason. I mostly bought it because it's super fast, and I heard it had a great stereo. So. That's why I bought my Tesla. And uh, gas was super expensive at the time, so I thought that's a nice little added benefit there. It's given me a window into how successful I think the whole electric car thing will be. Um, and the technology will get better over the years. But, man, we aren't there yet. The car that I've got has got a range of about 330 miles, which is... That's about as good as it gets. That's as it? good as it gets. Most of your electric cars out there, way shorter. Like, I have a friend who drives a Chevy Volt. It goes 50 miles. If you're... If, 50? Yeah, the, wow. adva- the advantage of that is then it switches over to gas. So at least you oh. can stop at a gas station. But the electric car thing, it would seem to me right now, is great if you live in and live a lifestyle where you're going to stay. Like, if you're taking the kids to school and going to run to the grocery store and work isn't that far away, for most electric cars, that works pretty good and... and, and uh but for most not. I mean, like the car I have is really expensive. It goes 300 some miles, but I did a long trip over the weekend. And I got to say, I haven't gone through the whole experience. If I was going to do it again and I had another vehicle that ran on gas, I'd probably drive the vehicle that ran on gas. I mean, it is enough of a pain in the ass. To have to find charging stations and then wait for it to charge and then constantly be worried about, do I have enough to get me to the next wherever? Mm. As opposed to gas where, you know, you run low on gas. There's a gas station freaking within a block of you everywhere you ever are. And it takes you like two minutes to fill the damn thing up. And so that's just my personal experience. Even, Even though I'm like emotionally leaning toward it, wanting to be a good idea. Mm hmm. How long does it take to recharge for a trip uh, during a trip like that? If I want to completely recharge from like nothing to three hundred, it'd probably take forty-five minutes at Oof. one of the fastest char- charging stations. But you don't really want to ever get down that low because what if I'm too far from the next charging station? So you you, you know you don't ever want to get that far down below a hundred before you're looking for a charging station. And right, yeah, it's it's not it's not super convenient. And all the so I've got a Tesla. Elon's the only person that's put out a infrastructure to even make this possible. They are all over the place, but they're not super convenient. They're at the top of a lot of parking garages, so you have to go in the parking garage, Some tape, sometimes pay to have been in there, and go clear to the top floor, which takes 15 minutes, probably get to the top and the bottom, uh, both directions, and you're parked up there, and they're full. Lots of times they're full. There's like mm. one stall empty because there are so many Tesla drivers there. I was I left a restaurant in Los Angeles and went to the top of a parking garage, and this is as urban as good as it's going to get anywhere in the world. And I went to the top of a parking garage. There was one slot open. There were 15 Teslas charging at one o'clock in the morning. 
Wow. And so there's wow. just not the infrastructure. It's a, it's, you're, you're, and that's in LA. And that's in LA. Come there's, on. There just isn't the infrastructure for the electric car thing now or anytime soon. Let alone the producing the electricity part, which is the part the airway's talking about. How are we going to produce all this electricity? Yeah. So yeah. it's just, it's just not ready. It, it's a lie to pretend that, you know, when Joe Biden does all the driving around an electric car and all that sort of stuff and meeting at the whatever, we're not even close to that being the dominant way people travel. Yeah, I've always thought that if you're a multi-car household, maybe you're an individual or a couple or whatever, you've got to have uh, an electric car for local and then yep, that, your, that, your gas car to take trips. I think that is the most likely scenario is that you have your, your two-car family and one of them's electric. But it, yeah, like I said, if I was going to do it again, I would take the gas-powered vehicle. It's just easier. Mm. Um, so you can talk your green New Deal all you want. We ain't there yet. Oh my God! The technology at the risk of driving this into the ground. The technology that exists right now is a thousand miles away from being able to take over and power the country. It's, it's it's just it's a joke. I'm sure we'll get there. I believe we will get there, and we will be driving electric cars. But it ain't going to be next year. It's not going to be by 2030 or whatever they're claiming. No, if I'd had to guess, if I had to guess, I'd say maybe in 20 years. It could be. That's a long way away, though. A concerted effort by both parties and several leaps forward in technology. Armstrong and Getty. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. And now, he strong and getty fabulous fabulous editorial in the national review by their national review board i'm going to hit you within a minute or two uh britain making a huge change in how it deals with transgenderism and children a his and historic change if you will but first a couple of uh people you might want to hear from uh clip number 16 michael's a professor at children's mercy hospital explaining how not giving puberty blocking chemicals to children is a form of psychological abuse so whether the parents fully understand it or not transgender children going through puberty of their own gender is harmful in this special way so as we've seen refusing puberty blocking treatment prevents immediate and intense psychological harm and second it causes lasting and irreversible physical harm. So we can compare the parents of transgender children opposed to um, physician-recommended treatment to naturalist parents, so parents who misuse traditional or mistrust uh, traditional Western medicine. Regardless of whether these parents have good intentions, these children are often at risk of harm. So in various cases, the courts have ruled that naturalist parents are required to treat their children according to traditional principles of Western medicine. Um, not only that, but they're criminally liable if they don't do so. Yeah. So arguably a similar, similar case could be made with the parents of transgender children. But before the, we get to the topic matter, what is it with the people with really crazy ideologies sounding so weird? Like I don't. Gascon in L.A. I mean, what is it that people just say? Out there, 
crazy, like 99% of us don't agree with them, weird ideologies. Sounds so strange. I don't know, but they're trying to uh, bully everyone into silence. Again, if you did not understand that, there was a professor at a major medical institution saying, if uh, a parent of a confused adolescent girl says, no, we're not going to feed you puberty blockers and let you get surgery, they are psychological abusers and should be prosecuted. Right. Second, this is Christy Olazeski from Yale Medicine talking about how they help kids as young as three years old along their gender journey. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and I am the director of the Yale Gender Program, which is an interdisciplinary program working with gender expansive individuals, three to 25, and their families. We um, help individuals who are questioning their gender identity or who identify as transgender or non-binary. We help them with their gender journey, um, thinking through that, thinking through the risks and the benefits of uh, medical intervention, uh, starting medical intervention, um, and also building supports around them. And I love what I do, so it's really, really wonderful to to be working in this field and to be working with individuals who are gender diverse and gaining their support and helping them on their gender journeys. Their gender journeys. This woman has the smile of the cultist on her face the entire time and this weird look in her eyes. She works for Yale, for goodness sakes. Okay. Anybody so that's who thinks a kid has any idea of gender or any of that sort of stuff at three either has never had kids or is a crazy person. These are people who, if your little boy puts on a princess dress at age three, will help him on his gender journey. Okay? In irreversible medical ways. Uh, Juxtapose that with what's happening in Great Britain. All of you progressives who are constantly looking to Europe for an example. This is from the editorial board of the National Review. By the spring of 2023, Britain's state-run transgender youth clinic will shut its doors for good. The National Health Service in England announced it was closing the Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic last month after an independent report concluded that it was, quote, not safe or viable long-term option for gender-confused young children. The report, conducted by the former president of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, found that patients were, quote, at considerable risk from clinicians' unquestioning affirmative approach, meaning whisking them along the conveyor belt of let's change your sex. Soon after, a London-based legal firm announced a class-action lawsuit on behalf of a 1,000 families whose, quote, children and young adolescents were rushed into treatment and, as a result, suffered, quote, life-changing and, in some cases, irreversible effects. I should have pointed out, as I usually do when we discuss this, if you're an adult, do what you want. Be who you want to be. It's none of my business, and I wish you nothing but health and happiness. Be who this is you about... want to be. Go where you want to go. Oh, my. Uh, this is about children. Entirely children. Skeptics of this wicked experiment, writes the National Review, rightly feel vindicated by the clinic's demise. But this is hardly consolation to its victims. No lawsuit, however successful, will ever restore what has been taken from them. Their peace of mind, fertility, sexual functioning, and even healthy body parts. But rather than heed this warning, the United States continues to move full speed ahead with so-called gender-affirming care. Quote, to see what's in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle, George Orwell wrote. And England's Tavistock Gender Clinic has been the focus of intense national scrutiny, in large part thanks to journalists and especially those at the liberal-leaning Times of London doing their jobs. 
When journalists noticed that referrals to the clinic had increased 20-fold in the past decade, from about 250 a year to 5,000 in 2021, they asked the obvious question, why? Again, this is a liberal newspaper. Thanks to their dogged reporting, the truth was set loose. At the behest of activists, vulnerable patients were being fast-tracked into wildly experimental treatment, while clinicians, later whistleblowers, who objected were being silenced. Ordinary citizens were appalled. They put pressure on the government to intervene. Popular figures such as J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, weighed in. That's how she became such a controversial figure and is so hated now by progressives in the U.S. The National Health Service's decision to shut down the clinic was a remarkable concession, an acknowledgement of harm, and a recognition that a major course correction was needed. Learning from these mistakes, the British government is now much more cautious about transgender ideology. For instance, the British Attorney General recently clarified that schools do not have to abide by students' preferred pronouns and that restrooms must be kept single-sex. Wow, they went as far as the, you don't have to abide by the pronouns. Right. The outgoing Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, also made clear his party's commitment to acknowledging the biological reality of sex. But the Biden administration is in a far, far different and more disturbing place. The Assistant Secretary of Health, Rachel, formerly Richard Levine, vows to support and empower young people. That's a quote. And quote, to get gender affirmation treatment. The Department of Education's new Title IX guidance actively encourages schools to expand the definition of sex to include gender identity and the definition of sexual harassment to include sex-specific pronouns. So if you don't play the pronoun game, you'll be sued under Title IX. Across the country, gender clinics are becoming more numerous and brazen in their recklessness. The Boston Children's Hospital, which I will uh, jump in and say, is like so many of these places funded by the Pritzker family. J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, and his billionaire family who have a transgender sister or cousin or whatever, they fund all of this stuff. One family. They've given out tens of millions of dollars. Anyway, uh, across the country, gender clinics are becoming more numerous and brazen in their recklessness. The Boston Children's Hospital has a promotional video advertising gender-affirming hysterectomies for adolescent girls. And the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh has a similar one for puberty blockers. Like the Tavistock, the closed British one, their motivation is ideological. But unlike the Tavistock, they've added a monetary incentive. Of course, Americans have been asking the same questions that were asked of the Tavistock, only they have been ignored and maligned by the mainstream media and liberal politicians. When Lisa Littman, a medical doctor and researcher at Brown University, first identified the phenomenon of, quote, rapid-onset gender dysphoria... Uh, which is peer and social contagion among trans-identifying youth, she was smeared. Meanwhile, clinical activists are doing everything in their power to obscure the truth by propagating biased and methodologically bankrupt research. They're desperate to dismiss or downplay the testimony of detransitioners. In the United States, victims of gender clinicians are having a harder time with lawsuits than their British counterparts, owing to the falsely asserted standards of care, as well as narrower statutes of limitations. The activist strategy has been to assert a medical consensus that doesn't exist. Levine claimed that when it comes to gender-affirming care, quote, there's no argument among medical professionals, and that pushback would, quote, drive people to suicide. That dishonesty is unbelievable and unsustainable. As Britain turns its back on transgender ideology, the medical and moral consensus insisted on by the activists is revealed as a preposterous sham, obscuring an even more shameful scandal. Amen. That is something. It's a tiny number 
of ideological terrorists who are willing to kill your career, for instance, if you dare disagree with them. And again, only thing I'm talking about is children. If you're an adult, you have a transgender issue or what have you, you do whatever you think is necessary. And again, I wish you a great outcome and a happy life. As young as three. Can you imagine anything sicker? It's just, it's unbelievable. And and yet, I mean, with the activists have targeted us. We'll get all sorts of how dare yous and, and who knows what else. Um, but if you think all this stuff is crazy and you can speak out about it, please do, or they will win. It's got to be a a really tough situation if you happen to be a married couple and don't agree on this stuff. Oh, my gosh, yeah. that would I mean, you talk about something that would would actually tear you apart. Oh, my God. If one of you thinks, no, our four-year-old thinks she's a boy or is a boy, and we need to, you know, make that happen. What are you crazy is the other side. There'd be no bridge in that gap. Yeah, that's a tough one. And and it's so interesting. It's so often college-educated women who are desperate to be seen as good people and not not haters. And so if they're not anti-science, they think they're, they're on the side of science, I guess. Well, I think it's it's much more yeah, I suppose so. Um but so when their six-year-old little boy wants to play with dolls, they are enthusiastic about it because if they embrace that, that's a that's proof that they're a good person in their cycles. And especially white women who are desperate not to be the oppressor in critical theory. And so okay, I'm I'm an affluent white woman. I'm clearly at the top of the totem pole. I'm the oppressor. I'm a bad person and women especially uh, you know, in general, are desperate not to be seen as bad people. They want to belong and form coalitions. And so how do you become a non-oppressor? By becoming an enthusiastic cheerleader for uh, this uh, gender-bending stuff, queer theory. It's it's really, it's if it were not so troubling, it would be almost funny. Armstrong and Getty. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. I hope you had a good, long weekend. I did. And here we go. I'm still obsessed with the speech that the President of the United States gave last Thursday. Without question, the ugliest speech ever given by a President of the United States. He is the living opposite of Abraham Lincoln. On a scale of decency to indecency, they are 180 degrees apart. Abraham Lincoln spoke, and this was after hundreds of thousands of Union soldiers were were killed in the fight against the South, secession, and slavery. Hmm. The three S's. The South, secession, and slavery. With malice towards none and charity for all. This president is the opposite, with malice towards many and charity to my allies. Malice towards those who oppose me and charity to those who support me. 
pretty difficult to overstate how awful that speech was. MAGA Republicans. The list of things that he accused MAGA Republicans of, all of which were lies, which is part of the fascination of the whole thing. Let me give you a rundown. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They're working right now as I speak in state after state to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies to undermine democracy itself. They promote authoritarian leaders. They fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of the country. They tried everything last time to nullify the votes of 81 million people. This time they're determined to succeed in thwarting the will of the people. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. MAGA Republicans look at America and see carnage and darkness and despair. They spread fear and lies, lies told for profit and power. When you uh, actually list the thing, what was it, a 10-minute speech? 20. 20-minute speech? Uh, I think so. Hmm. Is there any, any parallel to that in, in American history? Of a president speaking about... What, what, how many voted for Donald Trump? 74 million. 74 million. 74 million. I'm a MAGA Republican. What does that mean? It means I supported President Trump when he was president. Because he was a great president. Because I care about America more than I care about hating Trump. The narcissism of the never-Trumpers is very, very depressing. Because a lot of these people I expected better from. I can't stand Trump. Therefore, screw America. That is what it amounts to. Some of them proudly said, formerly Republicans and formerly conservative, they voted for Joe Biden. Wow. That is really something. Who are... uh, He... he, You understand, what is a MAGA Republican? It is... It is a Republican who voted for, for Trump. That's what a MAGA Republican is. You voted for Trump, but you, you didn't believe in making America great again? You, you, thought, you thought the statement was a, was a fascist statement? Well, I don't quite, quite get it. Who, what's the difference between a Republican who voted for Donald Trump and a MAGA Republican? Can you think of a, a difference? Okay. I was just wondering. So I'm sitting in this room with a MAGA Republican. Yeah, afraid so. There are two of us. Let me think here. We embrace anger. We thrive on chaos. We live in the shadow of lies. Everything here is exactly what the left does. In fact, I have defined them as chaos in the arts, in the sciences, in education. In in every realm, it is chaos. Remember when I spoke to you folks years ago? Not many, maybe within the last five of, of an exhibit covered by the New York Times, seriously covered, of giant 
sculpted poop at a Netherlands museum. Turds, they were called. It was a, a giant turd exhibit. I, I, I could think of nothing that better represented the left in the arts than an exhibit of poop. Or the famous Piss Christ, right, with a crucifix in the author's urine. Courageous guy. Think he would do that with the Quran or a, or an image of Muhammad? Of course not, because he has nothing to fear from Christians. The left fights the people whom they have no fear of, Christians and conservatives. They're not going to be hurt by us. Wow. MAGA Republicans look at America and see carnage and darkness and despair. Well, we do see carnage, darkness, and despair. I will agree to that. That was accurate, at least for me. I don't despair. I broadcast many programs against despair, saying it was a sin against God to despair. But indeed, there's carnage and darkness, all brought about by the left, its acceptance of the violence of 2020, its celebration of the violence of 2020, it's non-prosecution of the people who engaged in the violence of 2020, $2 billion of property damage, the complete undermining of parts of the inner cities and, no, excuse me, the parts of the, the major parts of capital cities and largest cities, Washington and Oregon and uh, and let's see, where else did they have the great riots? Washington and Oregon come to mind with the takeover of the property. Did we have them here in California, too? Yeah, sure. Every major city. Every major city. Yeah, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Baltimore. Baltimore. And the continuing carnage. See, it's an interesting thing. I guess Joe Biden doesn't see carnage. I'll bet he is oblivious to the amount of violent crime and it's and its ascension under his regime. And regime is what I use for the first time in my life with regard to an American administration. Well, MAGA Republicans. Unser Unglück, our misfortune. Biden is not a Nazi. The Democrats are not Nazis. But the isolation of a, of a segment of the population as the misfortune of a country has a very dark pedigree. People should be aware that these things can lead to very bad results. When a leader of a country tells the people of the country there's a segment of the country that is its misfortune. Now, segment, I mean, that's... that's it's not quite the word for half the country. The demonization. One might say, well, don't you feel this way about the left? And the answer is yes, I do. No, but I, dis- I distinguish them. They are a small minority compared to the, compared to liberals. That's true. But I, if I gave a speech if I were president and I gave a speech, I would say, I, I would list what the left is doing, 
this is not a list. This is just a bunch of, of charges. In this, during this program, I will tell you what they are doing to medical schools. The, the, the oaths that they are having medical students take. There's going to be a real rift between medicine and the American public. First, again, thanks to the left. Did you ever think of your doctor as a sheep, as, a, as complicit in, in the devolution of the country? Of course not. Of course not. Who doesn't have positive feelings towards his or her doctor? This, this will uh, rapidly uh, die. Hi. Hi, all. Dennis Prager with you. A graduate of the University of Minnesota sent uh, me a transcript of an oath that incoming doctors, correct? In, this is the incoming medical school students. They, it's called the white 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 lab coat ceremony. White lab coat ceremony. Every medical school has. Every med really every yeah. medical school has it. Yeah. For the incoming class to the medical school? I'm shocked that they allow white coats. I, I, I'm not joking. I truly expected it to be changed to pink coats, not to black coats, because I think they, they feel that would be going too far. I mean, all the people in black are, are, are the doctors and the uh, and attending physicians. So they, they would do pink because that, that's more a color of LGBTQ activism. But anyway, they're, they're still having white lab coats. Fine. So at the University of Minnesota, one of the scummiest institutions in America, but remember the list of scummy institutions. By scummy, I mean people that are deliberately ruining the lives of young people, deliberately ruining college students, thinking, hearts, souls, minds, a, a loathing of truth, and just about anything awful the University of Minnesota embodies because it's run by that tepid word, the woke. So here is what the, the next generation of doctors was, was told to say publicly, this oath the incoming class at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Twin Cities. Twin Cities. Twin Cities. Okay. The students of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Medical School class of 2026. With gratitude, we stand here today among our friends, families, peers, mentors, and communities who have supported us in reaching this milestone. Our institution is located on Dakota land. Today, many indigenous people from throughout the state, including Dakota and Ojibwe, call the Twin Cities home. We also recognize this acknowledgement is not enough. We commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. future doctors. Now let me try to understand that. There is 
again, structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. When, when these sheep read this, do they know what they're talking about? Yeah, you're, you're shaking your head. I, I, they wrote it. I don't think Who's, who wrote it? The, the students wrote their The students letter. wrote this? Yeah. Well, it was under their mentors that they wrote it. I mean, well, if they wrote it, it's even scarier. I, I agree with you. Structural violence deeply embedded within the health care system. Well, that's true. They cut people up. Maybe, maybe they're referring to that. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. They came out against the gender binary system. These are your future doctors announcing at the outset of their medical school experience that they reject that there are two sexes in the human species. I've spent much of my life telling people not to be scared, but I got to admit, this is scary. These crackpots are the future doctors. They're crackpots. They're brainwashed sheep. The gender binary. Ableism. What does ableism mean? Discrimination in favor of the able? Like in sports? The sports suffer from ableism? Give me an example of ableism. If I were paralyzed in an accident but could still speak like Charles Krauthammer was paralyzed, did he suffer the effects of ableism, Charles Krauthammer? Paralyzed most of his body? I, I would like an example of ableism. Can anybody here give me an example? Sean, can you give me an example? Ableism? I'm, I'm getting silence, which is, in this case, a good sign. Okay, so they're against ableism, the gender binary. Colonialism. Ooh. I see. And where is that taking place? White supremacy and all forms of oppression. As we enter this profession with opportunity for growth, we commit to promoting a culture of anti-racism, listening, and amplifying voices for positive change. Wow, change. Well, it's on the video right now on, on my screen, right? We're showing this, this the white the lab conference. That's one of the, the deans, right, speaking? Huh? Just before yeah, I know, I saw that part. You can watch the show at the Salem News, News Channel. What else are they taking an oath to? Uh, let's see. Oh, promoting a culture of anti-racism. 
and amplifying voices for positive change. Change, yes, of course. We pledge to honor all indigenous ways of healing that have been historically marginalized by Western medicine. What does that mean to honor all indigenous ways of healing? Do Native Americans avoid Western medicine? Indigenous ways of healing? Hmm. What does it mean to honor that? Will they, will they use it? So let me understand. Hydroxychloroquine is banned, but indigenous ways of healing will be honored. The profession of medicine is having done to it what the left has done to everything else. Hi everybody, I'm Dennis Prager, reading to you the latest example of the truism of life, everything the left touches it destroys, now it is American medicine. They stand up like sheep, the next incoming class at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Medical School, and recite this despicable oath that they will fight the, the non- they will fight the binary nature, among other things, the teaching that there are two sexes. Wow. The human species is not divided between male and female. All other species are, but not the human. Interesting, no? Are there non-binary dogs or cats? But there are non-binary humans, and indeed the entire species of humanity is non-binary. More from what they stood up to say. We vow to embrace our role as community members and strive to embody cultural humility. So you can no longer say, I presume, that... Western civilization has been better than other civilizations. That I'm sure that that's isn't that what it means. Yeah. yeah. This is part of the radical egalitarianism of our time. Everything and everyone is equal. Nothing is better than anything else. Remember, I I've been bringing this to you all of my career. How long ago did I bring to you the New York Times classical music, chief classical music critic, Anthony Tomasini? Beethoven's music is no superior to anything else. And he gave the example of Indonesian gamelan music. I deeply respect the music of every culture. In fact, I enjoy most of them. But, in fact, all over the world, they play Beethoven, not gamelan music. Gamelan music is deeply meaningful to Indonesians, as it should be. Jewish music is very meaningful to me, but uh, they're, not, they're not playing it all over the world. They're playing Beethoven.
cultural humility. The joke is, this is such an arrogant oath, and they're talking about cultural humility. We promise to continue restoring trust in the medical system. What do you mean restoring? You're the ones who are ruining it. Who didn't trust the medical system prior to COVID? Maybe we shouldn't have, but we did. I did. Now I don't. When tens of thousands of of people in the medical field announce that despite the fact of their radical insistence on distancing and masks, it is, they came out for the anti-racism demonstrations of 2020. There was a health benefit to the country because racism is more dangerous than COVID. When, when you have 10,000 or more, whatever the number was, can you look up the number? I want to be precise. The number who came out with that declaration in 2020 saying that you're not going to have confidence in the medical system. We promised, yes, to continue restoring trust in the medical system and fulfilling our responsibility as educators and advocates. We cannot, excuse me, we commit to collaborating with social, political, and additional systems to advance health equity. We will learn from the scientific innovations made before us and pledge to advance and share this knowledge with peers and neighbors. We recognize the importance of being in community and advocating for those we serve. You understand what that means? We we recognize the importance of being in community. Okay, I see, with those we serve. So they will live in the community of those they serve? What does that mean? So if your hospital is in in the inner city, you'll live in the inner city? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. I hope you had a good Labor Day weekend. In advance, you think these vacation weekends, wow, three-day weekend, and then it's over (laughs) so rapidly. Uh, such is life indeed such is life rapidly is the word I do we do well let me let me there are so many things I want to play for you do we have the little non-binary girl yeah does that does Sean have that no 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 the, the question is not do I have it does Sean have it okay fine why are you pointing at him so I'm, I'm confused I see. Okay, great. Now, there was an answer to my question. So I'd like you to hear this. This is uh, an, another children's hospital that has uh, succumbed to ruining children. I can't tell you how amazing it is for me to say this. If one were to isolate an institution that one thought would do only good to attack children's hospitals it's almost a joke you're attacking children's hospitals what what then what's left 
which is, by the way, a very fair question. What's left is whatever the left has not yet touched. Played for you Boston Children's Hospital's video advocating, I mean saying, not advocating, just saying outright that almost from birth children know they're the other sex or they're not, not any sex. This is a Boston Children's Hospital video. Did they take it down, by the way? They did take it down? Yeah. Can we still play it? Yeah. We, we, we have saved it? Yeah. Well, bless our souls. And now here's another one. This is a video put up. It's hard for me to believe, but I saw the video. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago puts out a video promoting a woman who facilitated her adopted child's transition to non-binary. So it's the woman who's adopted this little girl, and there is a video of the mother, the adoptive mother, with the girl. She's been adopted by two women, is that correct? I believe so. I think it comes out. Uh, that I didn't I didn't catch that part. Anyway, it's it's not particularly relevant uh, to to the issue. So again, there's this girl that doesn't give her age. It she sounds about six, and she's with her adoptive mom, discussing the fact that she's non-binary. Before three years ago, was there a child in America, one, who said, I'm non-binary? The damage that the left does is so rapid, thanks to the President of the United States, a big supporter of the non-binary movement. The man is, is the, to say he's the most destructive president in history, yeah, is, is such an understatement that it's, I feel silly even saying it. I'm still reeling from his hate-filled, demagogic speech of last Thursday. It was pure hate for half this country. And the media loved it. According to Charles Blow of the New York Times, it wasn't even harsh enough because he excluded some Republicans. Not all Republicans, only MAGA Republicans. Okay. Now, here is the video put out by Lurie Children's Hospital. All right, so you want to talk about gender today? Yes. So what, what, do you, what is gender to you? Hmm. What happened, guys? Like my birth parents right, said wait, 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 that wait, wait, I was wait, a I got girl. Lost. So forgive me. Oh, so let me explain that to people. I didn't know it was up there. Start again. This is the... The adoptive mom talking to to the adopted daughter. Okay, it's on the screen. Okay, start it again, Sean, please. All right. So you want to talk about gender today? Yes. So what what do you what is gender to you? Hmm. So okay, there's a camera in the way there. Like my birth parents said that I was a girl, but they made a mistake. (laughs) Yeah, us too. Yeah. Right. All right. Wait, 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 wait. What what was that? My, My my birth mother 
said I was a girl, but she made a mistake. Is that correct? Yes, and us too. Us too made we a also mistake. made a mistake. Yeah. We who adopted you. Yes. Okay. He assumed that you were a girl. But then when did you set us straight? Well, I was at least like five or six. But it started before that. You kept sending us signals, right? You'd say, sometimes I want to be a boy. Yeah. Sometimes I want to be a girl. Something yeah. just doesn't seem right here. Well, I wasn't a girl or a boy. Ah, so what are you? Non-binary. Right. And how do you feel about being non-binary? Good. Your mom and I have tried our best to support you and make that like a something that's celebrated in our household. Have you ever spoken to your class about your gender? Yeah. What did you tell them? I told them my pronouns mm-hmm. and also my name. And why are your pronouns important to you? Well... Like, it would be like if I just... I was like, I can't remember your name. I'm just going to call you Susie. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be so cool, would it? Well, if you ever forget someone's name, you can ask them. Yeah, if you forgot their name, you can ask them. Or if you don't know somebody's pronouns, you can ask them, right? Yeah. So asking is very important. Yeah. It represents you, right? Yeah. Like, how did it feel to, like, be able to share your story? It felt, like, really, really, really good. It felt really good. And then at the end, the logo of the children, Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. That's now no, yeah, Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, the Patuxnack Family Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine. LurieChildrens.org slash Never Fear Talks. If you're in Chicago, you should tell them you don't want to bring your child there. They're sick. The people at Lurie Children's Hospital are sick. If this is not sick, the the term is not usable, is meaningless. They made a mistake when they said you were a girl. How's that? And we did too. Well, she said when I was five or six, so she must be seven or eight. Fine, so she's seven or eight. She has preferred pronouns at the age of seven or eight. My uh, my suspicion is that this this mother talking to her girl here went to college. You, you learn in college. You, you can't. If you don't go to college, the chances of your speaking like this are minimal. If you don't go to college, you actually think the human species is divided between male and female. Go to college. You're indoctrinated otherwise. Sean, do you have the the Young Turks attack on me? Is that, uh, is that video up? Is that ready? You'll have it shortly. So I wrote a column last week on the fact that women are disproportionately ruining the society. 92% of kindergarten teachers are female. 75% of all teachers are female, and 85% of librarians are female, unless you think they're doing good work with, your, with kids then women are disproportionately hurting the society. 
especially in the premature sexualization of children. Let's talk to you about your sex or your gender. They're learning too much grammar and English and history and science and math and music and art. So we'll cut back on that nonsense to teach you about drag queens. She's not a girl and not a boy. That is correct. And this is put out by a children's hospital in Chicago. Back in a moment. The Dennis Prager Show. Wow, these children's hospitals. Whoa, the speed. The speed with which the left ruins things is, is one of its most remarkable achievements. And then we are, we who have reason on our side, and it is the reasonable position that the human species is two sexes, we are caught flat-footed. What happened? How did this happen? A children's hospital puts out a video of a seven or eight-year-old girl puts out the video. Do you understand? They're advocates. And and I played for you, I didn't play for you, I read for you last hour, the pledge that the incoming medical school class at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Medical School took is completely woke oath. Doctors of the next generation will be left-wing advocates. Maybe even more than they will be preoccupied with medicine. It's time-consuming to be a leftist. You're fighting battles. Hey everybody, it's the Ultimate Issues Hour, the third hour of the Dennis Prager Show, every Tuesday. For about 15 years now, has been devoted to the great issues of life, exactly what are ignored in our educational process, except in religious schools. One of the biggest differences between a religious education, which I had, and a secular education, it was not true a hundred years ago, but it has been true for the last hundred years, is the religious education deals with big issues as well as the regular stuff, math, and so on. And the secular education doesn't deal with the big issues. So this is the hour to fill the, the gap in people's lives with regard to the greatest issues of life. Okay. I have a guest. I don't usually have guests on the Ultimate Issues Hour, and very rarely in studio, but I do. Second time. How many times have you been on? This is my second time. It is your second time. Dr. Mark McDonald, he's a psychiatrist, an MD. It's redundant, but most people don't know. Psychiatrists have MDs, psychologists have perhaps a PhD or whatever they have, and it's just for your knowledge. That's why... uh, Psychiatrists can prescribe psychiatric drugs, but psychologists cannot. 
because they're MDs. So Dr. McDonald has written another important book. He's a psychiatrist again. Freedom from Fear, a 12-step guide to personal and national recovery. It's short and sweet, my friends, and it is up at DennisPrager.com. Freedom from Fear. I'm telling you, I know you already from the last time. An hour won't be enough. I have so much to bounce off you. So let me start with this. I have been thinking about this more than any other subject in the last couple, just the last year or two. And I've come to a tentative conclusion that nature is so powerful. When people who, to go to the biggest example of good and evil, people who risk their lives to hide Jews in the Holocaust, I've studied them a lot, and they were always asked, why did you do it? And most of them said, I couldn't not do it. And so you wonder, if you're not born with a courageous nature, or do you even accept that, Dr. McDonald? Is there such a thing as being born with a, a courageous nature? The, the, I assume we acknowledge the default is cowardice. So react to all the things I just threw at you. I do agree with you. I do believe that there's a nature of courage or a nature of cowardice. What I think has changed recently, and I say this from a clinical psychiatric perspective as well as the perspective of a social observer. I observe culture. I observe it in L.A. I observe it out of state. I observe it out of country. I just spent six weeks in the former Yugoslavia, five of the seven republics, and I compare and contrast and I look at differences. And what I was most struck about or struck by in my travels is the difference between the American society, which is, I would say, a softer and has been softened society in the last 10 or 20 years, and societies that are still living in an acute stage of reality. We have been completely transformed in this country, particularly younger people, because of social media and phones and the reflexive urge to stay indoors in the last three years after being ordered to. And it has, I believe, driven out a lot of the courage that I used to see when I was growing up and that we would have seen just five or six years ago. I think that's a significant change. So I agree with the nature point, but I also think that the environment, when you're pounded down by it over and over and over again, like a meat tenderizer, it can just bleed the courage out of a person. Yeah, well, I I couldn't agree more. This I've said for many years in the nature versus nurture debate. I said, here's my conclusion. 100% nature and 100% nurture. (laughs) So let me me actually develop your point, or have you develop your point there. Why has being indoors... And why have social media weakened people? I think there's two points here. One is the objective, and I believe there is an objective. I don't think it's just money. I think it's control. I think it's compliance, and I think it's the inducement of fear because fear 
even now, perhaps more now than it was three years ago, is like a lubricant for this machine of control and compliance. And you know this, a student of history, China, Soviet Union, all of the dictatorships have used fear, coercion, and intimidation as a way to control the population. So I think there's an objective behind media's attempt, and very successful, to keep people inside, on their phones, on their computers, where the information can be very, very well regulated, and away from outdoors, social environments, and other people that they can speak to -to face-to-face. And the reason for that is that when you are outdoors and you're speaking to people, you are in contact with objective reality, with other people's true thoughts, true feelings, and the actual environment. You don't see bodies lying in the streets if you actually go to the streets. But if you listen to the news, you would imagine that there are bodies in the streets. This is, you know, from a couple of years ago when we're all told to stay home. So when you're indoors, you're away from people, and you're being controlled, certainly by fear and certainly by propaganda, that makes it much, much harder for you to express courage, to critique, and to challenge. And that's exactly what a controlling government wants to do. And I believe we have a very, very controlling government right now. So I'm extrapolating from that 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 might be part of the encouragement of people to stay home and not go to work, not work at work, work at home. I agree. Because when you go to work, then you start asking questions. You go to the water cooler. You meet people in the parking garage. You go out for a walk. You get coffee. And you say, you know, I don't understand this. I mean, we've been doing all this stuff for months and months, and nothing's really changed. What do you think? You know, I was wondering the same thing. And then you start to have a conversation. You start to develop a dissident clique. Dissident cliques are not allowed right now in this country. Any, any opposing opinion is dangerous and is crushed. It is censored, it is canceled, it is investigated. So if you can keep people at work and at home, you control who they talk to, you control where they go. They are like physically caged animals that are being given all of these little inducements, these dopamine rushes, whether it's a click, whether it's a watermelon, a plus, a happy face on the phone for children, or if it's adults, you can go to Zoom happy hour now. So you don't even have to go to the bar. You just have the Zoom happy hour, and you make sure that the boss controls who goes in and who goes out. It can be monitored. It can be recorded. People can be caught saying the wrong thing. So they're always a little bit careful about what they say and do because it's actually electronic. It's not a walk in the park. I think there's a lot of, of reason besides efficiency, besides saving time and money, to keep people home and not keep them in the office. It's an excellent point that I had not thought of. Staying home. So I I raised a question last hour. I don't have an answer to. Nobody has an answer because you don't know the future. But we can have educated guesses. Do you think that the first lockdown, which we just experienced of, of nearly two years, schools shut certainly two years in most cases, Do you think that this will make it easier to do that again, or more people will dissent? At the outset, I would have said the former. I would have said that it would be actually more difficult to reinstate this lockdown having gone through it and having suffered the tremendous harm, damage, injury, 
I, I hate to say this because I, I want to... All right, think- tell us what you hate to say when we come back. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's such an, a, a pregnant pause. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Dennis Prager. The book Freedom from Fear by Dr. McDonald is up at DennisPrager.com. The Dennis Prager Show. This is the Ultimate Issues Hour, third hour every Tuesday, and my I, my guest, I rarely have guests on the Ultimate Issues Hour, so it gives you an idea of how much I respect this man, Dr. Mark McDonald. He's a psychiatrist in practice in West L.A., is that correct? In that West correct. Los Angeles. And his, his latest book, the second one, Freedom from Fear. Everybody should read it. It's as simple as that. A 12-step guide to personal and national recovery. So, you were about to give me the bad news on a question that I posed to you at the end of the last segment. The bad news is that I have changed my position in the last three years. And the change of my position regarding whether or not the overreach of government, the mistreatment of its citizens, the intentional harm, and I believe it has been intentional, done to children and adults and even the elderly, would embolden and strengthen and, like a test of, uh, of metal under fire, cause people to resist the next wave of coercive tactics and of overreach. Now I don't believe that anymore. I have come to believe that most people, humanity as opposed to individual humans, and you make that distinction a lot on your show, humanity has been so softened now and so opposed to taking risks, to expressing courage, that they will very likely fall to the next wave of government overreach, of lockdown, of shutdown. And I've already seen it happen twice. We saw it with the Ukraine crisis, and we're now seeing it with the eco-crisis, the electricity shutdowns, the threat to take away all vehicles that uh, use gasoline power in 10 years. There's no outcry. Parents, mothers, today are facing, in many cities and districts, the same rules that they faced two years ago and one year ago, down to age one, two, and three years of having their children go to school with masks on in certain parts of the country, including New York. Where's the outrage? One or two people are picketing. Everyone else is just saying, well, that's just the price of public schooling. I was shocked when I saw this the first time. I was disappointed the second time, and now I'm seeing it the third time, and it doesn't even phase me anymore. I do not believe that Americans, and I speak about Americans now because it's largely an American problem that I focus on, especially in my books and talks. Americans today are very incapable of resisting the encroachment of dictatorship. I'm just letting it sink in. That's the reason for the silence. Well, I wrote in 2020 two of my columns back-to-back. One was called The Good German and the other The Good American. The ease with which dictatorships can be established is is mind-boggling. I only will say that I think that at least conservatives, and there are many of us in this country, right? It's almost half the country, 
A lot of them will fight back if there is another draconian lockdown. I think, I think a lot of people on our side have had it. What do you think about that? I do agree with that. And that's why I think the next three to six months are going to be critical in this country. We're already seeing signs that the radical left is overreaching. The Mar-a-Lago raid is a good example of this in the last month on uh, Donald Trump's estate. And if conservatives who are largely a nonviolent and, and ingratiating group, they don't, they don't provoke conflict. If they feel in this country that they have lost the possibility to use, even imperfect one, but to use, largely speaking, the electoral system to express their opinions and have them become law and to elect representatives that represent their values and beliefs, if they no longer believe that that's even possible come November and December, then I think there will be a bifurcation point where the country will either collapse, people will simply give up on both sides, or they will be, there will be um, potentially a violent revolt. I don't think that we can continue to be standing with one foot on the fence like we have been for the last two or three years and there not be a tipping to one side or another. This is not a sustainable way of keeping a country going right now. That's what I think. You're a psychiatrist, and so you, you I'm sure you deal with people who have family problems because family problems is almost redundant. <laughs> Families have problems. So, again, were you surprised, are you surprised, because it continues, with the ease with which parents have allowed their children to have no education for two years? I was initially, and now I'm not. And I'm not because I think I understand why they're allowing it. There are a lot of factors, and one of my responsibilities as a clinician is to focus on the most important ones, because you can waste time on factor number 17, 18, and 19 if you miss number 1, 2, and 3. Obviously, phone social media is a big, big, big component, people allowing their family to just stay at home and be trained over Zoom. But I think another one, which is perhaps even more important and less spoken about, is the disappearance of men. I think the withdrawal of masculinity in this culture, in this country, has allowed a vacuum to develop into which women, who would otherwise be nurturing, caring, and rational, have become hysterical. And they have allowed absolutely ridiculous, irrational, and anti-common sense laws, uh, mandates, and impositions into their lives that they otherwise never would have allowed because a man would have been standing next to them to support them in pushing back. You know, Pew Research just published a report, I think a week ago, that stated that 25% of Americans don't have a father in the home, compared to 7% around the world. So that's a 300% increase in the U.S. compared to other countries on average. So we have three times the number of fatherless homes than anywhere else in the world on average. What does that do? And ignore the, what it does to young men. Think about what it does to adult women. Mm. This is a big problem. I want to come back to that. I want to remind you who are listening and watching, this man makes great sense. His book, Freedom from Fear, just published up at my website. Hey, everybody. I am with a wonderful man, thinker, 
man of courage, Dr. Mark McDonald, a psychiatrist in L.A., Freedom from Fear, a 12-step guide to personal and national recovery, both of which we need. The last subject you were talking about is the retreat of the masculine male in American life, and that this may be a major source of our, uh, of our fears. I believe that what we sustained and suffered over the last three years could not have occurred had there been a strong male presence. The vacuum that is created by the withdrawal of men from society is very similar to a termite infestation in a structure. It creates a weakening. It creates an opportunity for damage to occur. And the opportunity that we faced and are still facing today, it's getting worse, it's not getting better, included women who would otherwise have been well-contained emotionally becoming hysterical and jumping into the void and making very, very profoundly bad decisions for themselves and their families. This could not have happened 10 or 20 years ago. And I also believe that this is why today we're seeing the transgender activist ideologues go after children and why women are agreeing with this and obeying it. I believe it's because men are not standing up. Men have become so intimidated, so scared, so fearful that they refuse to take any risks of offending a woman or a woman-backed group by expressing what is a rational, healthy, oppositional, and assertive sense of containment for the woman's emotionality. As I said to you off the air, my working definition of masculinity is not being intimidated by, by women or by a woman. I think that would be a apt test for masculinity where in its absence it is not possible to express true male nature and courage a man that cannot stand up to a woman with calm strength assertive demeanor cannot express masculinity anywhere in his life so when women accepted the fact that their child was not in school for two years for no good reason, no good reason, she had a zero scientific basis to accept the evil that teachers did to children. And I emphasize teachers, not teachers' unions. Teachers' unions are not composed of aardvarks. They're composed of teachers, 75% of whom are female, 92% in the early grades being female. So uh, the, the husband should have said, are you kidding? Our kid is not going to go to school for two years? A man should have said that. Is that right? Guess who said the opposite? The replacement man. And the replacement man, the replacement father figure, the replacement husband, because the fathers and the husbands are gone now, was the government. When women marry the government, that spells the end. When women, primarily urban, secular, single, white, highly educated women, have now turned towards politicians and media and corporations to supplant their brother, their father, their husband, now we have a group of women who are primed to follow anti-rational, anti-common sense and harmful dictates from those above them. So to modify the feminist line from when I was in college, 
a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. What she would really now say is, a woman without the government is a fish without water. That's exactly right. Take away the government from this scenario and replace it with men, actual physical men who are strong, who are courageous. We don't have these problems anymore. This is why there's such a divide in this country on this subject. And by the way, you use the magic word for me, secular. If there's no God in heaven, there better be a God on earth. And now we have neither. A father on, excuse me, a father in heaven. This man is profound. Freedom from Fear is his book, A 12-Step Guide to Personal and National Recovery. Mark McDonald at my website or just go to any any source, even even Amazon. The Dennis Prager Show. Hello, everybody. I'm with Dr. Mark McDonald, psychiatrist in practice West Los Angeles, book Freedom from Fear, his second book. I had him on the first book. If he writes 10 books, I'll have him on 10 times. The first was The United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. Now it's a 12-step program to personal and national recovery, Freedom from Fear. It is up at my website. It's an easy way to get it. Or just go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or if you actually have a bookstore in your area. Although my suspicion is the bookstore won't even carry this. It's a very interesting subject, by the way, how non, uh, non-intentionally the demise of bookstores has benefited conservative thought. They, they blocked, most bookstores were run by liberals that featured overwhelmingly liberal books. So it's just, it's another story. I don't want to get sidetracked. This, the, the, the demise of the mail is a, uh, is a factor that we have just been talking about. Now, to, now more directly to your book. So you, it says 12-step, and I'm a big fan of 12-step programs. I think they're great. Guide to Personal and National Recovery, Freedom from Fear. Do you describe fear as an addiction? I do in this book. That's fascinating. I, think I never it's an thought important of that. Schema. People don't really know what fear is. They don't know how to describe it. They often will revolt against it. They'll say, well, I'm not a fearful person. I, I, I'm not afraid. But there's been such an elimination of stigma in, in a good way in the last 10, 20 years for, say, alcoholism, cocaine addiction, gambling addiction. Addiction is no longer a stigma in the United States. Everybody has been to or knows someone who has been to a 12-step program, and we all know that they work. They're proven to be effective. So I decided, well, if I want to address fear, why don't I address it under the auspice of an addiction? And it's not just uh, a convenient turn of phrase. I think it's actually clinically correct. I believe that people became terrorized, traumatized by fear over the last three years, and now it's reached a point where it's become a reflex, like grabbing a shot of whiskey before bedtime. Not because you feel scared, but because that's just what you do. So now people have become so naturally inclined to think and act from a position of fear because our social norms have been completely redefined by the fearful rather than the courageous. We, as you used to say, worship now at the altar of safety rather than the altar of the church or God. 
So when people are addicted to fear, they even stop thinking that they're scared, and they just make bad decisions, just like a drunk does, just like an alcoholic. They are arrested developmentally in being able to progress as humans and attain their potential. That's why I think it's important to call it an addiction and to treat it as it is. Okay, what's the first step? Acknowledge that you are addicted to fear. Hi, my name is Dennis. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, my name is Alan. I am addicted to fear. Because if you don't admit that you have the addiction, there's nothing else you can do. You can't go to the next step because you have to start from a position of truth and honesty. Mm -hmm. And I say that in my practice, and it's not just about fear. It's about depression. It's about uh, narcissism. Every problem that comes to my office requires, I require, an agreement between me and the patient that we're going to start with what's truthful and what's honest and what's real. And then we're going to move from there. I can't work with somebody who comes in who's a narcissist and denies that he's a narcissist or has OCD and denies that he has OCD. You're wasting my time. So if you, who are addicted to fear, can acknowledge that you're scared, that you're making decisions and thinking from a position of vantage point of fear rather than rationality, rather than courage, now we have a jumping off point. Now we can go through the STEP program and we can look at other ways that you can treat the fear, like removing the dealer which is the media, like attacking your narcissism, thinking that everyone around you thinks that your fear is the most important thing. It's not. You're not the most important person in the room. Neither is your fear. The person that's 20 feet away from you not wearing a mask and you want to make that person conform to your fear, stop it. You're not that important. There's a lot of points I make in these 12 steps that I think follow from the acknowledgement of the addiction, but you have to acknowledge it first. So when a person is addicted to gambling, alcohol, drugs, there is an adrenaline rush in part, certainly in gambling. There is also a, an at least immediate calming. What does fear give you that is analogous? The fear itself creates a set point of anxiety, which is then lowered when you act out to protect yourself from the imagined harm. So for example, when you're addicted to nicotine, you wake up anxious in the morning. Your baseline is now anxious. The cigarette provides a calming effect to reduce the anxiety down to the level that a normal non-addicted person would have, someone who doesn't smoke. So someone who's walking around buzzing all the time from fear, that's not a helpful state to be in. But they didn't actively choose that. They agreed to it because they thought that was the right way to be. So how do you get rid of that sensation of anxiety? You act on that fear in an irrational way. For example, someone walks by you on the street. It's 100 degrees outside. You are in the fresh air. And you feel anxious because you've been trained to be afraid of people now. So what do you do? You put a mask on your face. That's irrational. It's not helpful. It's harmful, but it does one thing it's for you. It's your cigarette. It's your cigarette. It calms you down. And I'm using the mask because it's a great I love symbol. It. I love it. But, but it's true with everything. We should compare masks to cigarettes. They're very similar. They both hand to face. They calm you. They're both unhealthy. They are somewhat antisocial in their effect. They create distance. Now, cigarettes, I suppose you could say if other people are smoking cigarettes, they create pro-social environment, just like people that all wear masks like to congregate together. So it's kind of similar in that sense. But they're both addicts. Both groups are addicted to something unhealthy. Did you have any masked patients? I did until I put a sign on my door saying I will not allow them in anymore. 
I banned masks from my practice, and I started with children. And I said, you want to bring your kid to the office, and you want your kid to wear a mask? Find another doctor. And I put it in my sub stack. I posted a photograph of the sign. This was about oh, six months ago. Oh, my God. And that sub stack, which is called Dissident MD, it took off. I had 10,000 views if, all over If this the world. man were a woman, I'd fall in love with him. <laughs> Freedom from fear, Mark McDonald. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com.